0: Hello and welcome to Midnight Mosey. I am Marianne Wells. I've been doing a series on Amarillo, Texas and the Panhandle and getting into why this area still has a reputation of being connected to the Old West. And the main focus has been cowboys in the area and their connection to some of the different places. Today, I want to share some information about the XIT Ranch. The XIT Ranch is notable in Texas history not because it was a very long-running ranch. I mean it it really wasn't. We're talking about the mid-1880s to about 1912. So short life in some ways. But the XIT is remarkable for its sheer size. So let's talk first of all about why something like the XIT Ranch was even possible. In the 1870s, the population in Texas was growing and so was the economy. There was talk by about 1875 in the state legislature about the need to do something with the state-owned lands the state government owned a lot of the land in Texas. Could they do something to sell some of that land to fund a building endowment? In particular, could they fund the building of a better state capital? Because the state government was quickly outgrowing what they had. Well, in 1875, there was a lot of discussion about how many acres should we sell to fund the building of a capital and debate went back and forth in the legislature from 3 to 5 million acres that was the number that was suggested then some people said well that sounds ridiculous how big a state capital do we actually need let's just sell a million acres and that was the agreement in 1876 now if you remember our timeline of the texas panhandle 1876 is after Billy Dixon fought at the Second Battle of Adobe Walls and the Battle of Buffalo Wallow. And it's the same year that Charles Goodnight started a ranch in Palo Canyon, which was really the first true ranch in the Texas Panhandle. Well, conversation continued, as it really seems to, with state governments. I mean, that really hasn't changed at all, has it? They start this conversation back in 1875, In 1879, they finally agree on how much land and the rough area. And, of course, they end up going back to the previous estimate. Hey, one million acres, not going to be enough. No, let's sell about 3.05 million acres. And in 1880, teams went out and began the official survey of the area. It's interesting that when they were dividing up the survey into different tracts of land, they actually decided to go with a Spanish league measurement. So one Spanish league, according to the Texas surveyors, was 4,428 acres. This might seem odd if you don't know something about the history of Texas property law. In Texas, there were multiple, what they call, sovereigns of the soil. When you think about it, there was the Texas state government, but at one point Texas was in the Confederacy. There was the Mexican government. There was the Spanish government. There were these different governmental entities, and several of them issued land grants for the state. The earliest land grants for this physical part of the United States came from Spain. So culturally and historically it makes sense that we actually do have Spanish measurements. In fact, I took an extra elective in property class when I was in law school where we looked at some of that in detail and I learned about the VARA. The VARA was a standard of measurement that you can still see in some older Texas property deeds and titles And a vara is equal to about 1.18 meters, which if you have a modern day client and they want to know how many square feet is their property and the original land grant was in varas, you get to do an interesting conversion. There was not much math in law school, but there was in that property class. Well, they divide things up into these Spanish leagues. The goal is to sell everything for the best price possible, and there was a lot of debate back and forth of, does that get down to selling the individual leagues, or do we try to sell this as one huge piece of property? They sold a few little bits and pieces off, but really the focus was on selling it as one big piece of property. So some people, for example, like Goodnight, bought some land during this time, but the main piece was sold as one giant chunk. This is how we get the XIT, a three million acre ranch. Just think about that for a minute, three million acres. This ranch encompassed what is today ten different counties in the state of Texas. And was it successful for its fundraising? Well, good enough. They laid the cornerstone of the new Texas Capitol on March 2, 1885. There were some people who wished that the state capital had been started sooner, especially since the previous building had by this point actually burned down. But March 2nd marked the 49th anniversary of Texas independence. And it was decided that that was the best day to start building for the future. Now, the Texas Capitol is an absolutely beautiful building. To my knowledge, it is the only building, the only state Capitol, that has for decades now consistently had its own line of Christmas ornaments dedicated and inspired by the building itself. And these ornaments date back to, I think, 1995 or 1996. The state is so proud of this Capitol building that the ornaments are designed from different inspirational architectural things or historical things related to the Capitol. So for example, the most recent Texas Capitol Christmas ornament, the 2019, is a locomotive. This is in recognition of the fact that in order to get the first part of the limestone to build the state capitol, a special railroad had to be built just to get out to the quarry. As you might guess, because everything's bigger in Texas, even that quarry and all the readily available limestone in the state was not enough. So they had to look in other places. Actually, there weren't even enough stonemasons. They had to bring in labor from, I believe it was Scotland, and because they were hiring international labor, that actually at the time caused an issue with the federal government, and there were court cases about this. It is a beautiful building, very gorgeous, ornate grounds, Is like a park. The Texas state capitol is actually taller than the U.S. capitol. Part of that, I think, is due to the statue up at the top. A very nice statue with her own story, which I was able to learn about when she came as the, I think it was the 2006 Texas Capitol Christmas ornament. Um, Each one comes with its own little story. By the way, no, I am not being sponsored by the Texas Capitol gift shop. I just happen to really like the ornament collection.
1: Stir up my body, won't stand. I'm leaving Cheyenne and I'm off to Montana. Goodbye, old Payne. I'm leaving Cheyenne. Goodbye, old Payne. I'm leaving Cheyenne.
0: So that's a little bit on the Texas Capitol. Now let's talk about this Chicago group that actually bought the 3 million acres in Texas that became the XIT Ranch. Uh, A couple of the main investors, Colonel Abner Taylor and his son-in-law, A.C. Babcock, and this was actually called the Taylor-Babcock Group, but they had financing and they Turned in part for management to the Farwell brothers, John and C.B. And the Farwells had a very interesting history themselves. Just to give a little bit of perspective, when the XIT Ranch started, they were in their 60s, but they were by no means about to slow down. They were about to start on one of the greatest business ventures of their lives, and they were well qualified for a challenge because the Farwell brothers were two of the men who helped rebuild Chicago after the Great Chicago Fire. If you've been listening to this podcast series, you may remember I mentioned the Chicago Fire briefly at the start of the series, just to help set the scene for what things were like nationally. We're now looking at a time period where the XIT Ranches started about 14 or 15 years following the Great Chicago Fire. So, We've had a period of time for new fortunes to be built in the Midwest and for people to learn new things about business. So these four men decided to take some of those skills and some of their capital to invest and put it into this grand Texas venture. As you could probably guess, while these Chicago men were good at business and finance, that didn't really mean that they knew cattle. So they needed a good manager on the ground to manage the cattle on this three million acre ranch. And they went through a couple of different general managers until they settled on a man named A.G. Boyce. And his connection with the XIT started fairly early. He was one of the people to bring the first cattle to the ranch in about 1885. A.G. Boyce had his own interesting history during the Civil War, and he'd become an excellent cattleman. His skills were particularly critical when the ranch was starting because one of the first things they had to do after buying herds of cattle was to class them. And classing them meant sorting them out into yearlings, two-year-olds, and three-year-olds and above. This was important financially because a yearling, a two-year-old, and a three-year-old, those all commanded different prices. But it could be confusing. How do you draw the line between a yearling and a two-year-old? How do you draw the line between a two and a three? Experienced cattlemen could do it. And Boyce proved to be very good at classing. He also had experience on the trails, moving cattle to other markets. And so figuring out how to move the cattle around on this huge piece of ranch land was something that was within his skill set. And in fact, A.G. Boyce ended up being the XIT general manager for most of the lifespan of that ranch for about 18 years. As I mentioned, he was a fascinating cattleman, fascinating man generally, with what can only be described as a very tragic end. The story of the early Texas generations of the Boyce family is something I'm considering for a later podcast series. I've discussed it with a few close friends and they're all very encouraging. The reason I'm on the fence about it is that the full story is complex. If I do that story, I don't want to just read out facts. I want to try to step into the culture of that era in the panhandle, and that's going to take some effort. Um, I do know some good and some unique historic sources that I can use to help me achieve that, but it won't be easy. It is a story, though, that I, I would like to tell. I think it says a lot about this part of the country in the late 1800s and early 1900s, I think it says a lot about a change in our culture nationally, and also there are some remarkable figures in the larger story, like A.G. Boyce, who for various reasons really have not been talked about a lot in our local history. And frankly, why it's not been discussed much is a small story attached to the larger one. So that's something I'm, I'm considering. And if you are curious about the fate of one of the great cowboys, one of the great cattlemen in the Texas Panhandle, Um, send me a message through social media and let me know. the XIT Ranch. As I mentioned before, this ranch was kind of short-lived. Beginning in the, really, the 1890s and then heavily in 1901, the owners began selling off pieces of the ranch. There'd been a few economic developments. One was that more people wanted to move into the area, and so it was starting to look like a good idea. There, There was certainly demand to sell land, but also some people had proven that vegetables and other crops could be grown on land in the panhandle well that that changed the valuation of the land and made it seem possible to divide up part of the xit into farms so the sales really started the heaviest period of sales was really beginning in 1901 the ranch continued in existence until about Nineteen twelve pieces remnants of the ranch certainly continued long past that, uh, my dad, who grew up in Earth, Texas, yes, for all of you people who don't live in Texas, there is a town called Earth, there's also one called Paris, there's another one called Happy, and there's one called Miami. I know it looks like it's spelled Miami, but that's just not how we say it around here, but uh near present- day Earth, Texas was one of the seven major regional ranch headquarters for the XIT and my my dad grew up traveling past that it's no longer there but that was just part of the culture in this part of Texas for decades you knew somebody who had worked on the XIT ranch you knew somebody who owned a part of what had been the XIT ranch and you certainly had heard of the XIT ranch i don't know if that's true for the current generations but for all you know, you're living on a piece of the XIT right now if you live around the Texas Panhandle. Interesting little side note. As I said, the XIT Ranch really ended in 1912, but state governments being governments, they, uh, they decided they just had to get in one more final word. And so in 1918, The state of Texas announced that they had reviewed the surveys for the XIT ranch, and there had been some mistakes made when the final deeds and transfers had been written out, and the bottom line was that somehow the owners of the XIT ranch had ended up with 57,000 acres too many. You know, a rounding error. So the state sued and got their 57,000 acres back. One of the fun things that I found reviewing some old documents on the XIT Ranch was a copy of the General Ranch Rules from 1888. And reading through these rules, two things struck me. First is the clear influence of then General Manager A.G. Boyce. A.G. Boyce was a staunch Methodist. And there were certain behaviors he was not going to allow on the XIT ranch while he was in charge, and that included drinking and gambling. So yes, a 3 million acre ban on drinking and gambling in the state of Texas. The other thing that struck me when I read through these general rules is how well some of these could be adapted for a modern company's code of ethics. And that's that's probably me as a business law professor reading through things and not so much using the historic lens, but really there are some very good rules, and I thought I'd share just a few of them. So rules number six and number seven go to the idea of we do not want our employees to have a conflict of interest with the company. And I could see that being in a code of ethics. Um, You know, I think even the modern equivalent of six and seven could be how you are going to use your employer's resources, like what what are you using the internet and your work email for? Is it for the business of the company or for your own business? So here's number six. Private horses of employees must not be kept at any of the camps, nor will they be allowed to be fed grain belonging to the company. No employee shall be permitted to keep more than two private horses on the ranch, and all such horses must be kept in some pasture designated by the ranch manager. Number seven. No employee shall be permitted to own any cattle or stock horses on the ranch. I've actually seen a very similar rule in some corporate codes of ethics along the lines of you can't be running your own personal company out of your employer's company. Number nine is, it's an interesting cultural rule of the time. The abuse of horses, mules, or cattle by any employee will not be tolerated and anyone who strikes his horse or mule over the head or spurs it in the shoulder or in any other manner abuses or neglects to care for it while in his charge shall be dismissed from the company service. That was a ranch rule, but it was also a rule that had existed for decades within the U.S. Army. Frequently, soldiers were reprimanded and punished if they were seen to strike a horse or strike a mule. There were a couple of very notable exceptions under Colonel McKenzie when he was stationed out here in the wilderness. One of those exceptions involved Lieutenant Robert Carter. But I will save that story for another podcast. Ah, here's the no weapons policy. Rule number 11. No employee of the company or of any other contractor doing work for the company is permitted to carry on or about his person or, in his saddlebags, any pistol, dirk, dagger, slingshot, knuckles, bowie knife, or any other similar instruments for the purpose of offense or defense. I gotta say right there, speaking as a lawyer, very nice drafting that they included the or any other similar instruments. That says that this is not the absolute list. There could be other weapons we haven't even thought of yet. Continuing, guests of the company and persons not employees of the ranch temporarily staying at any of its camps are expected to comply with this rule, which is also a state law. That's fascinating to me. You know, we hear a lot of debates about gun control and... You know, should there be concealed carry, who should be able to purchase firearms, who should be licensed to carry them, should firearms be banned? Here we have a ranch rule, again, three million acres, where we're saying no to weapons, not just for the employees, but for any guests who come onto the property as well. I do wonder how much this rule was actually enforced. And part of the reason I'm bringing that up is when I look back at some of the battles during the era of the XIT ranch that were going on in places like Old Tascosa, when I pick up little threads of stories like one of our local pioneers, Lee Bivens, possibly being involved in a gunfight on a train. And then, of course, when I look at the history of the Boyce family, I wonder how well this rule of no firearms was really being followed there seemed to have been a pattern during the time particularly if you if you look at the history of old tascosa there would be a gunfight or in some cases a murder there might be an arrest if there was an arrest there was usually a trial but frequently the verdict was not guilty the most notable example of somebody actually going to jail for shooting someone in Old Tascosa that I can think of was the Catfish Kid, and that was when he shot an unarmed man. It seems that as long as the other party was armed, you had an argument to make of self-defense. So, I do wonder about this particular rule from the XIT. Number 12 is your no-gambling rule. Card playing and gambling of every description, whether engaged in by employees or by persons not in the service of the company, is strictly forbidden on the ranch. Number 13, I find particularly interesting, number 13 is very much a rule of this part of the country. In case of fire upon the ranch or on lands bordering on the same, it shall be the duty of every employee to go to it at once and use his best endeavors to extinguish it, and any neglect to do so, without reasonable excuse, will be considered sufficient cause for dismissal. Uh, so let's let's briefly talk about wildfires. The Native Americans who lived in the wilderness, as it was referred to, by some of the early settlers and the U.S. Army, they did controlled burns. They would intentionally burn off the old vegetation, and that is a form of wildfire prevention. But we lost track of that system. There was a notable wildfire in the history of the XIT Ranch. A.G. Boyce was actually away at the time in Fort Worth on business. But his son got word of the wildfire, managed to wire his dad, who quickly returned back to the ranch, and his immediate concern was organizing for relocation of all the cattle in that area. And just think about why for a moment. All the vegetation has been burned off. There's nothing for the cattle to eat. Your main asset on the ranch? is now in danger of starving to death. So there was a rush to get the cattle moved. At the same time, employees on the ranch were having to fight the fire and to try to keep it from spreading. Wildfires are still very much an issue in this part of the state of Texas today. My parents, who live north of Amarillo, have had to evacuate twice. It was, it was twice in, within two months. Now that I'm thinking back, this was a few years ago when we had a lot of wildfires north of the city. A couple of times I've been driving just outside of Amarillo, once actually within Amarillo near the hospital district, and I've witnessed wildfires actually jump in the road. Um, Once just in front of me, that was a very scary thing to drive through, and very glad I made it. And a couple times just behind me, once the State Highway Patrol was shutting down the road, I was one of the last cars that actually made it through. So this is something I think almost everyone in this area is aware of. And it wasn't that long ago that some of the ranches had to fight wildfires, and some of the cattle were actually badly injured. And, of course, there was nothing for them to eat. Some very devoted faithful students from West Texas A&M University gave up their spring break that year to volunteer their time. Yeah, volunteer, because this is a community, and that's what you do when people are in need. Volunteer their time to help those ranchers repair fences and treat the cattle for burns and injuries. So this, this issue, this very real Fear back in the 1880s of wildfires, it's still with us in this part of the country today. Number 15 is the no drinking rule. I just like some of the words in this one. Employees are strictly forbidden the use of vinous, malt, spirituous, or intoxicating liquors during their time of service with the company. Yes, that's definitely the voice of A.G. Boyce, the devout Methodist, saying, no alcohol. And this is a good general rule of loyalty. This is one I think with just a little bit of adaptation could be introduced into code of ethics today for companies. Rule number 16. It is the duty of every employee to protect the company's interests to the best of his ability, and when he sees they are threatened in any direction, to take every proper measure at his command to accomplish this end, and as soon as possible, to inform his employers of the danger threatened. That's just a good, solid rule. And then the last one I will share is what I'm calling the conservation rule. I sometimes think people outside of Texas have this idea that we're just running around, every one of us has a firearm, and that we're just shooting at anything that moves. That's not true. It's not true now, and it wasn't true back then. And I've been on some ranches where, in addition to running cattle or horses, the owners will also let paying parties come in sometimes to hunt the wild game. These ranches have very careful management of their wild game. They don't want to see everything hunted out of existence. They want to have this as a continuing process. So they are very careful in managing how many animals on their ranch they will allow anyone to come in and hunt. In some cases, there's considerable research done. I know of one ranch down around Laredo where They employ hunting guides who actually go out with video cameras every year and identify which mature bucks can be hunted and which younger bucks they don't want anyone hunting that year. They want to give those particular animals another two or three years at least to mature. There are a lot of people who believe in these conservation efforts, and that existed on the XIT. Rule number 21. No person or persons not in the employment of the company shall be permitted to hunt or kill game of any kind inside of the ranch enclosure under any pretext whatsoever, and all employees are instructed to see that this rule is enforced. Employees of the company will also not be permitted to hunt or kill game except when necessary for use for food. There's even another rule of the XIT Ranch that makes reference to employees are not allowed to run any of the wild game animals. In other words, if you were out tending the cattle and you saw a bunch of antelope, you were not allowed to chase the antelope just for the fun of it. Leave them alone. So that is just a few of my handpicked favorites from the 1888 rules of the XIT Ranch. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Midnight Mosey. Stay tuned for future episodes in this series. Coming up, we will talk about Old Tascosa.